Well, remember last week we had our regional executive here, uh, Al Fletcher, and he covered the shipwreck at sea from Acts 27. It was very nautical, very nautical, very mariner-related. Well, I want to start this morning at the end of that story. So if you, if you want to follow along, you can go to the, I think it's the Black Pew Bible, the red one, I, I don't know what page it is, but in the Black Pew Bible is the ESV, which I'll be reading from, starting at page 397 at the end of chapter 27. So chapter 27, verses 42 to 47. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So they were being shipwrecked, and their plan was to kill the prisoners. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Well, as I thought about what happened... I realized that when they arrived on land, they were soaking wet, probably suffering from hypothermia, and they brought nothing with them but the clothes that were on their backs. Any notes, any parchments, couldn't get their laptop. They just jumped in the water and swam for it. And that's how they arrived on the island of Malta. They literally dragged themselves out of the sea onto land. And it was the onset of winter, pretty cold. So that sets the context, okay? Picking up chapter 28, after we were brought safely through, so that's what they were brought safely through, the storm and the shipwreck, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Didn't know that until they got on. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed all of us, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Wow. Okay, so they literally dragged themselves out of the sea, cold, wet, and shaken, after being on this, you know, in this storm for two weeks, they almost without food except for the very end, onto the island of Malta. We know that there were 276 of them. This is not a small group. 276 of them. The native people woke up that morning to the messy scene on the beach and quickly ran down and kindled a fire to welcome them and warm them. It must have been a pretty big fire for that many men. And so they needed a lot of firewood. So we see Paul, the servant of God, jumping in to collect wood for the fire, and apparently a viper along with the wood. Now you wonder, how in the world could that? That doesn't happen. Really? So uh, some of you know this week, Norell and I were out at uh, Sebago Lake camping. I went out to the wood pile before we left and got two big boxes of wood to bring with us. So I'm loading the wood in the in the bins. We put the wood in the car, drive out. We put the wood by the fire in the first campsite and um, pull wood out first night, second night. Uh, The the third day, we're going to switch campsites. 
So Noelle goes over. She's just a little bit left in there. And so she dumps out the box. Guess what came out of the box? A snake. A snake. A garter snake, fortunately, in Maine. Not too bad. Just sat there all coiled up. <laughs> How did it get there? I don't think it crawled in. I think I was loading the wood into the box, and the snake was in the box, in the wood. It can happen. It was a little illustration from God for this sermon today. That happened this week with us. Anyway, crazy. We were not bit by the viper. Paul was. It fastened on to his hand. And the native people concluded that justice, capital J, I think Lorenda noticed that the other day, capital J justice was served. Why is it capitalized? That's interesting. Now let me pause here and talk a little bit about this word justice. The Greek word for justice is dike. She was a Greek goddess of avenging justice. There's a picture of her. Look familiar? She's described in Greek mythology as sitting by her father Jupiter, and when anyone does injury to another person, she informs him of it so they can be punished. That's her job. She was considered to be a young woman holding a balance scale and a sword. Her Roman counterpart, what do you think her Roman counterpart had in addition to this? A blindfold. That's what we see, right? Indicating equal justice. The polytheistic view of God, popular in Greek culture, was different from the monotheistic unified view of God in Judeo, now Christian culture. Polytheistic, monotheistic. So justice was distinct and sometimes in conflict with the qualities of other gods. That actually happened. Sometimes one quality of a god would be in conflict with another. They would oppose each other. So, in view of that, they concluded, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. See? Look at that, right there. We can conclude now that he's a murderer because this just happened. Okay, picking up at verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him... They changed their minds, and they said that he was a god. So they couldn't combine the qualities of justice and mercy, sovereignty and love, into the same god construct. So they concluded he must be a god. Something miraculous was going on here, and they knew it. They, knew, they saw it. They just couldn't interpret it from their God construct. They couldn't. This is the first instance in this story where we see the gospel of Jesus is not chained, but it advances even in the midst of trial, because of the trial, actually. They got to see the gospel lived out in Paul's life of selfless service and devotion to the one true God. And while it doesn't say so in the story... We can assume that if Paul knew what they were thinking, that he was a god, he would have refused their worship like he did at uh, Lystra, and he would have pointed, pointed them to the one true God and to his gospel. That's what he would have done, and probably did do that. 
if he knew what they were thinking. Okay, picking up at verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. The chief man of the island just happened to live nearby, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It just so happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Here we see the gospel of Jesus advancing through those who were sick, through the healing of those who were sick. So God is using sickness and disease, dysentery, to move the gospel because Paul is there and he's healing them. But you know what's interesting to me? As I began just thinking about this, it's interesting to me to remember who's writing about this story. Who's writing this? And what impact this particular episode of massive healings might have had on him. Remember, it's Luke who's writing the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote the book of Acts before, uh, after he wrote the Gospel of Luke, which he was probably going to write, begin to write, during the year, two years up at Rome. Now, he had probably heard stories like this, like Jesus doing these things, when he was interviewing everybody down in Caesarea during those two years. Kind of interesting that this sovereignly was happening. I don't know when uh, Luke would have had opportunity to get down there and do this, but he was probably interviewing people, probably including Mary, which mean, meant that he had this story of Bethlehem that none of the apostles would have known. Mary was there, she knew. <laughs> anyway, so Luke is doing these interviews. He gets through the shipwreck. He's on the boat with Paul and Aristarchus. And he gets up there and he writes the Gospel of Luke. I wonder if this experience on the island of Malta and all these healings, how that might have influenced him and given him such confidence in the story of Jesus as he wrote the Gospel. Isn't that interesting just to think about that, that that's actually what's going on here in this story. Not making it up. Well, the impact of Paul's work and witness among the island people was so profound that they greatly honored them and they showered them with whatever they needed as they later set sail for Rome. Okay? So now they're getting off to Rome. Picking up at verse 11, after three months, we set, so three months on the island of Malta, we set sail for a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Who are the twin gods? And why is this teeny little fact mentioned by Luke? The other ships probably had figureheads. I don't know what they were. Paul had already been on two ships, one from uh, Andromiatim uh, until Myra, the other out of Alexandria, loaded with wheat and heading for Italy. That ship was wrecked by the storm. Now they were loaded onto another ship out of Alexandria that had successfully wintered on the island, either before or after the storm, I don't know. But this one had twin gods as a figurehead. 
Well, who are the twin gods? There we go. This is what it might have looked like on the front of their ship. Is that the, is that the keel? The front of the bow? What is it called? What's that called? The bow. So it's just the bow. Um, and so that's probably up front. The two twin gods is probably what it looked like. These twin gods were stars from the Gemini constellation and were named Castor and Pollux. A little bit of Greek mythology here this morning. Now mariners don't just look at the stars for their astrological meaning, do they, John? They study and use the stars for navigation using a sextant. Actually, when Bob... Bob Bud Barrett was with us up at Maine Maritime. He actually took a class on how to use a sextant. <laughs> so they knew the con- this constellation. And they knew the Gemini constellation. They knew the sky. But this one had special significance. You know what the significance of this one was? These two twins were supposed to have power to save men who were in danger at sea. Anything happened recently that might have involved that? (laughs) I wonder if the sailors and soldiers took comfort from the idea that the ship they were boarding bore this image, especially after having come through such a perilous journey, right? Perhaps the centurion, the previous pilot and ship's owner, didn't mind them taking that comfort, whether they believed in it or not, as it made them easier to get on board. Get on board. But the contrast is noteworthy here between the twin gods and the one true God that Paul worshipped and believed in. The contrast is interesting. It was not the twin gods that protected them from the previous shipwreck and got them all through. It wasn't. It was the one true God that Paul worshipped and served. That's who got them through. And I just wonder if Paul mentioned it to those who sailed with him as they left. Just an interesting little comment. I always wondered why that was there until I got a chance to study that this week. Okay, well, picking up at verse 12, here's where we get mappy. So i got to throw the map up there. If you look at Malta, Malta is on the left side there, um, on the left side over here, and you'll see the rest of their journey here mapped out. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, And on the second day, we came to Petroli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. We were invited to stay with them. Other prisoners, the guards, the centurion, Paul, Aristarchus, Luke, for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God. Thank God. And took courage. And when we came to Rome, into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself, probably with all his friends, with the soldier who guarded them. Not with the other prisoners, I think is what that means. Okay, so upon arriving at Rome, the brothers from near and far gathered to meet them. Paul thanked God, took courage, and he was grateful and encouraged. So why? Why was he grateful and encouraged? Well, let's take a look at the faith community that greeted him. Do you know we can actually figure this out? 
we can find a description of the faith community in Romans, in Rome, by looking at Romans chapter 16. It's a letter that he wrote when he was in Corinth two or three years earlier on his way to Jerusalem where he was arrested and is now in, was in prison and then has finally got here. But he wrote that letter in Corinth. We know that because of who he stayed with, if you look at all the details, which I did over the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and so when he gets there, they have already had a rather insignificant theological letter called Romans. They've already had that letter for a couple years, okay? This has been so much fun for me. I've really enjoyed this study. Okay, so then Paul described who these people were throughout the letter of Romans. He describes them. So I went through and I identified some of the description of the faith community that he's arriving at in Rome. He says, they're called to belong to Jesus Christ and loved by God. Their faith in Jesus was already proclaimed throughout the world. Throughout the world. Paul not only knew many of them by name, but they were the subject of his constant prayer, he says when he's back in Corinth. They're the subject of his... He knows them by name. He's never been there, but he knows them by name. Interesting things that are going on here in the first century. He had been planning and longing to come to them for years by then. This is now three years later, but by then, for years, he'd been planning to come to Rome, but he wasn't able to go because of the unfinished work of preaching the gospel to the previously unreached people in between them. That's what was going on. In his letter, Paul addressed them as brothers several times. At one point, he said this about them, that he was satisfied that they were full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. (laughs) This is what Paul said about the Romans two years before he got there. Noteworthy among those he mentioned, noteworthy to me, was a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. You've probably heard of them. They're in in Rome. They had previously lived in Italy. They had been kicked out of Italy because of uh, all the Jews were kicked out of Italy at that point. They had met Paul in Corinth. Remember, they were tent makers with him. They went with him to Ephesus, were there for a couple years, talked to this guy Apollos, led him to a a more straightened out faith in Christ. They were in Ephesus, and now they had apparently moved back to Rome, to Italy, probably settling near Rome. And they were hosting a house church. They were hosting a house church in Rome. This couple is a dynamic couple. And they were in Rome when he wrote the letter to Rome from Corinth and were probably still there when he arrived. Can you imagine the greeting, the reason why he was so encouraged and thankful seeing this couple that he invested in? It's just like like coming home to his people even though he was in a different place. In Romans 16, he identified others who were probably greeted him like the first convert in Asia. The first guy that was led to Christ in Asia was now living in Rome. <laughs> so he knew him. He, he knew people who were hard workers for Christ, people who had experienced imprisonment. He referred to them as fellow prisoners. 
Some who Paul said were his kinsmen, which I think means that they were Jews. There were a few Jews among the believers there. Most of them weren't. Most of them were Gentiles. And several women that he described as workers in the Lord. Those who had served with responsibility and distinction. One of them may have actually carried, maybe with other people, but may have actually carried the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome. A gal named Phoebe. Go look. See what you think. Another woman that Paul refers to as being like a mother to him. <laughs> that was Paul's view of women. These are the people he identified in Romans 16. Altogether, he named over 25, he named over 25 believers, along with reference to countless other associates and with specific greetings, and he hoped to come to them in the fullness of Christ's blessing to enjoy their company for a while. That's a cool purpose, right? To enjoy your company for a while and to enlist their help in going to you know where? To Spain. <laughs> That's what it says he wanted to do after he went to Rome. He says, I want to go to Spain, and I'll need your help. So after I go up there, we'll get some good time together for a little while, and then you can help me get to Spain. That's my next adventure. And that's why he was so grateful and encouraged when he finally got there, even though it was courtesy of the Roman Empire. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> let me finish up. And in the next verse, 17 after three days, he called the local leaders together, the local leaders of the Jews. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through verses 17 through 28. Suffice it to say this, that Paul explained to the Jews, he called the Jews together when he first got there, he explained to the Jews why he was there under Roman guard and how he had appealed to Caesar. He said that it was because of the hope of Israel that he was wearing this chain. He was in a chain. He says, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. The Jews wanted to hear more, what he meant by that. He probably mentioned resurrection, but I don't know. They wanted to hear more. So they set up a day when they gathered at his lodging, and Paul spoke to them from morning till evening. Not just one hour. From morning till evening. About the kingdom of God, about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some of them believed, some did not. Paul then made a final statement, quoting Isaiah, and signaling his call from God to go to the Gentiles. So that's a summary of those verses. The book of Acts closes with the following verse. Verses 31, 30 and 31. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It says that he lived there two years at his own expense. It doesn't say in Acts what happened after that. It's kind of, it's, the book of Acts is a funny book. You get to the end and you're expecting to, and they lived happily ever after. You know, where's the happily ever after here? It doesn't say that. Um, it just kind of, well, what happened then, Luke? We don't know whether he was martyred at the end of that uh, imprisonment or released. I believe he was released and he went on to write 1 Timothy and Titus and then he was re-imprisoned where he wrote 2 Timothy 
and then he was martyred. That's what many people believe. I believe that. And I, I actually scoured those books in the last couple of weeks just to confirm that belief. Anyway, but you can have a different opinion. It also says that he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. It says that he did this with all boldness, and it closes, like I paused, it closes with this description, without hindrance. Yes, he may have been chained, but the gospel was not chained. The gospel is never chained. The gospel is never chained. During his two years of final imprisonment, Paul wrote at least four letters to the churches and a specific believer. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the specific believer, a guy named Philemon. I scoured these letters to understand what it was like during those two years' imprisonment. Here's a quick sample, a quick snapshot. He prayed constantly for the believers he knew throughout the world. This is what he was doing. Giving thanks to them and praying macro prayers for them. Macro prayers, not micro prayers. And he boldly proclaimed the mystery of the gospel from his house arrest, serving as an ambassador in chains, he says. Ambassador for Christ in chains. He received emissaries from churches like Epaphras, who led the church in Colossae to Christ, Epaphras. He received them. He sent emissaries back to the church with the letters like Epaphroditus to Philippi and Tychicus to Colossians and Ephesus. He built new friendships. He ministered in community with ministry partners and co-laborers like Luke and Aristarchus who were on the boat with him. And Timothy, his beloved disciple, was there with him for a part of the time. And Mark, Luke, Mark, he had two gospel writers with him. (laughs) So Mark, who he must have been reunited with by then, which is interesting, isn't it? Remember that story? Now Mark is with him in Rome in his first imprisonment, and he asks for him in his second imprisonment. He made disciples like Onesimus, the runaway slave, whom he sent back as a brother to be reconciled to his previous master, and that's what Philemon is all about. Overall, he did not lose heart, and he didn't want any of the believers to lose heart because of his imprisonment. No, he wanted them to know that what happened to him had really served to advance the gospel because everyone knew that his imprisonment was for Christ. And most of the brothers had become confident in the Lord and much, were much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, he wrote Philippian, the letter of Philippians in prison in Rome. The last time the Philippians saw Paul in a prison, he sang songs and there was an earthquake and he was released. That's what happens, right? When you get in prison, you sing songs to God, you have an earthquake and you get released. But Paul's been in prison now for years. So where's God? So he writes to them the letter of Philippians. I want you to know what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's not chained. It's not stopping. The word of God is never chained, he says. Never chained. Over the next few months, between now and November, Jonah and I will pick up the letters of Paul 
starting next week with 1 Thessalonians, and we'll move through them in the likely order he wrote them. 1 Thessalonians is one of the first ones. They were in Thessalonica for three weeks before they got kicked out. And he writes Thessalonians. It's a letter written to people who are new in Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians is. So we're going to look at it and study it in the context it was written. Our hope is to show you the progress of the gospel of Jesus advancing into the nations and to inspire you to see how the gospel of Jesus is moving today and can move through you and me. We want to see people put their faith in Jesus to become established in the faith as disciples and to become equipped to make disciples for a lifetime. The seed that God can build a tree out of. And that's how it started from the humble beginnings in Acts chapter 1. Remember back in January, the title of the sermon was Humble Beginnings? Loving disciples trying to figure out who should be the 12th. And they get this commission, go to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. Humble beginnings. And then it spread to the rest of the known world by the end of Paul's life, reaching even into the household of Caesar, it says at the end of Philippians. That's what's going on here. The Great Commission to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, is the movement of God. It is the unstoppable, Paul. It is the unstoppable movement of God. Because though we might be chained by various circumstances, the gospel of Jesus is never chained. And God is immovable and cannot be stopped. Therefore, it says in 2 Timothy, the part that Kathleen didn't read, therefore, we endure everything for the sake of those who might come to Christ. This is the mission of God that he has called us to in Christ Jesus. May God inspire you with this hope and this purpose today. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are so thankful for the life of Paul and the other apostles who did not choose the comforts of this world over the mission of knowing you and making you known to others. They did not. Because of them, we enjoy the benefits of the gospel of Jesus, living with a clear conscience, free from guilt, shame, and the chains that once held us captive. Lord God, Lord God, let us be equally moved to endure everything, including suffering and persecution, even the infringement of our precious rights and liberties for the sake of those who come after us, that they may know the gospel of Jesus and walk in the fulfilling promise of mission, of a mission worth living and worth dying for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.